0: Now the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Today in our church's calendar, it's Refugee Sunday, and I've talked a little bit about that in the pew sheet. Uh, Refugee Sunday is, uh, within our calendar, placed to be somewhere near uh, the United Nations Day of Refugees, which is the 20th of June, a day uh, dedicated to that in 2001. Uh, as a day to um, remember and give thanks and to recognise the contribution of displaced people to the the world. So we often see displaced people and refugees as a bit of a drag, but actually most of the countries where refugees are settled uh, contribute significantly to the life of those places, and so uh, today is a day to remember that. But it's also a day to recognise that, uh, well, refugees in, in our country have gone off the political agenda, really, Three years ago, before the last election, they were a hot topic. Uh, so we had double the quota, we had a poster up in my window for that for quite a long time. Uh, lots of parties were agitating for doubling the quotas, other parties were resisting that, lots of creative ideas about how we could up our game, uh, but this year they've just not mentioned at all, in part because, well, all of that has been overwhelmed by COVID-19, uh, which, ironically, is having a devastating effect on some of those communities. Um, but, and we're currently taking no refugees, because our borders are shut. So uh, they've kind of disappeared off our radar. But the United Nations, uh, the, the commission that is responsible for refugees and displaced people, said that last year the numbers of displaced people went from 70 million to just under 80 million Uh, with about 30 million being refugees. So that's an increase of 10 million in a year, which is more than 1% of the world's population are now displaced peoples. And that number is not going to get smaller. That number is going to increase, in part because of climate change, uh, both through the um, conflict around resources, but also also because some parts of the world will just simply be too hot to live in and will dry out, and people will have to leave there because they won't have any means to live there. And ironically, other places will become too wet, either because of rising sea levels, which we put a lot of energy into, but uh, floods. So Bangladesh, for example, sits on a river delta, and you can imagine what's going to happen to that once the water levels rise and where all of those millions of people. And so it's estimated that if we do well we can limit the number of displaced peoples to hundreds of millions, but if we don't do well, those numbers will be in the billions. So think of the consequences of that. So today for us is a day to think about that and to think about our role in all of that. So part of that is to pray about those issues. Uh, Part of that is to uh, work with agencies that are currently working with displaced uh, peoples. And so today... uh, we're encouraged to, uh, to talk about Operation Refugee, which is a Christian World Service, uh, how they raise money to, um, for their partners who are working with displaced peoples around the world. Uh, but it's also an opportunity for us to think about uh, the causes of um, displaced peoples and refugees, um, and how we can get involved in um, lessening those. And finally, uh, how we as a country can be a welcoming place refugees. Um, so Tauranga currently is not one of the places where refugees are settled, uh, but I look forward to the day when that is, is the case and we can be actively involved in that. So I want to put that to one side for a moment, and I want to talk about uh, our passages today. And I want to start with the story of Rebecca, which is an interesting story because there are a number of ways you can, or people do, respond to the story of Rebecca. Uh, so, uh, for some people, it's a very disturbing story, and for good reasons. The first is, um, the writer tries very hard to really see Rebecca as, well, a piece of meat, really. She is uh, a means by which the story is continued. And, uh, and and as a person, not really treated that well, we could say... Uh, it's a kind of interesting story from that point of view. Um, it's also disturbing because, well, Abraham sends his servant to find a wife for his son because uh, he doesn't want him, him marrying any of the locals. Uh, just kind of like in New Zealand when uh, when parents of European descent would tell their children they weren't to date Maori or Pacific Islanders or Asians, just white people, thank you. Uh, so I know that went on in my family. And um, it's exactly the same thing going on here. Don't marry, don't marry any of these people. and you go back home and find a suitable wife um, for my son? Now we often think of the story as Uh, The means by which God's faithfulness to Abraham is honored. And I preached about that six years ago, surprisingly. Uh, But actually, it's not Abraham who's the key to the story, it's Sarah. Abraham has other children. He has Ishmael. And when Sarah dies, he marries again. He has a whole bucket load more kids with the second wife. So uh, he has lots of children whether Isaac has children or not doesn't make any difference to the promise made to Abraham he is going to have lots of ancestors Sarah however has one child Isaac and for God to honour God's promise to Sarah then he needs to get married and start having children I know that feeling so uh, with our own children it's like, at which point are you going to start hooking up and thinking about the future. Not yet, Dad. Uh, so the servant is sent off. So well, the podcast I listened to, one of the people was like, this is not a great story, I really don't like it. Uh, that was a woman. And the, one of the men, an Old Testament scholar, said, well, he wanted to push back against that. And he said, the interesting thing about the story is, we often talk about how Rebecca is a piece of meat in this, just a piece of property that is bartered between men. But between Isaac and Rebecca, only one of them gets a choice. Which one gets a say? Rebecca. So the story unfolds. The servant goes to meet the elders of her family. They call Rebecca and say, Will you go with this man? And she says, Yes. And then the family says, but we missed out. Well, can you stay for a while so we can say goodbye and do this properly? And the servant says, well, actually, I'd quite like to get going again tomorrow. And and Rebecca says, well, I think we should leave tomorrow. So actually, Rebecca has quite a bit of say in that story. So how much say does Isaac get in the story? None. Abraham and Sarah go, it's time you got married. Abraham sends a a servant off to find a wife for him. The wife comes back, and Abraham basically says, here she is, enjoy. So he's like, oh, okay, I'm getting married to this woman. Excellent. Uh, Which is actually how it works around the world, with a little bit more say still today. And the extraordinary thing about this story is, as far as we can tell from the biblical text... Rebecca is the only wife that Isaac had, which we can't take for granted, but they lived in a polygamous world. Most people had more than one wife for all sorts of reasons. Like if one of them couldn't have children, you wanted to make sure that your heritage was guaranteed, so you needed to make sure you had lots of children. There was high infant mortality rates, high um, mortality rates at birth. So you needed to have more than one wife, and if you got tired of one wife... Uh, Well she stayed within the family and you could enjoy the other wife and she was catered for. Uh, She wasn't cast out in a monogamous world, she gets cast out. In a polygamous world she stays within the family. So it's a protection for women as well. So, but within this context, as far as we can tell, Isaac only has one wife and he only has two children. Esau, who was an hairy man, and Jacob, who was a smooth man. So, uh, and those twins fight for the rest of the story. So it's an important story because it moves the story on, but it is also the means by which God's faithfulness to Sarah is honoured. And it is honoured through this woman who, uh, even though the biblical writers were men and tried to tell the stories from a men's point of view, still comes through as quite... Quite the strong woman who, through her initiative and through her choices, is the means by which God can do that. So that's an important thing. It was her decisions about, like, it was socially acceptable and expected that you would offer hospitality to strangers, but clearly it was something in the way she did that that struck that servant. This is the person. Uh, her choice to uh, go with the man. Her choice to get off the camel. I like how they said slipped off the camel. Have you ever ridden a camel? It's a really long way off the ground. It's a little terrifying. I can't see anyone slipping off a camel. Like, you have to get the thing to go down to ground level so you can slip off. So, anyway, just an aside. So, uh, and the fact that she took the initiative at that moment as well. She did not wait. She took the initiative uh, through her initiative, through her compassion, through her generosity, the story continues and God's promise is on it. So with all that in mind, we come to our Gospel reading from Matthew chapter 11, which is pretty well known. Come to me, all who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. I think there are a number of us at the moment who need that, that rest. To just stop and take a breath to rest in the rest of God promised through Jesus. The word yoke that Jesus uses in this is an interesting word. Uh, for us, it's uh, about um, farming stuff and uh, you put it on the oxen and they can plough the fields, etc. etc. Uh, and, and often the commentaries will talk about that imagery, but within the rabbinic world, a yoke had a completely different meaning. So Jesus was a rabbi. He, in Matthew's Gospel, he is placed as a rabbi. He is placed within the rabbinic tradition. Matthew is the most Jewish of all the Gospels. And so when Jesus says that within um, Matthew's Gospel, you need to kind of look at that rabbinic background. And within the rabbinic background, a yoke is an interpretation of Torah. It is a particular way in which the Mosaic law is understood and applied to daily life. And so there are, there were and are a number of yokes, a non, number of schools of thought about what Torah means and how it should be applied. And we can see that. I mean, some of them are very visible. The, the ultra-Orthodox with the prayer curls and the prayer shells coming out from under their things and wearing clothes that date back 200 years. I mean, all of that is one yoke of torah and then there are a number of other yokes so what jesus is presenting here as a rabbi and most rabbis will be schooled in one of those will be taught in one of those schools and they will then teach from that school they will say you have heard it said that rabbi so and so said this and so they are situating themselves within that yoke within that school so when jesus says my yoke he is presenting a new way of understanding torah which he says is easy and gentle. So what does Jesus' understanding of Torah mean? Well, I'm currently reading a book by a wonderful author called Rachel Held Evans called Inspired, and she's, uh, she was an extraordinary person. Um, so tragically, she died last year. She was in her mid-30s, and she had an allergic reaction to uh, the antibiotics they gave her for an infection, and she and went into a coma and died so just tragic uh, but her story is one of um, growing up in the south in a very conservative evangelical family uh, going to Bryant College where you were uh, taught how to answer any question that any person might have um, about anything in life and you could give the biblical answer about that. Uh, but all that started to crack in her last year of her English degree, uh, and so uh, she started a blog about what that, how she was dealing with that, and she was surprised at the number of people who were helped by that, and, uh, and kind of were subscribers and read that, and so in the end she started um, talking about that and writing books. So Inspired is about the Bible, and her understanding of the Bible out of that which is basically the Bible's story, and we need to stop using it as a scientific textbook, but read it as a story. So, um, she talks about Jesus' understanding of Torah, his yoke, as the way he lived that out, the way he interacted with people, and then how he talked about those interactions Uh, that was his yoke. So what what does she say about that? Well, she talks about how in many of the healing stories, Jesus touches people. Now, we don't pay any attention to that. But in his world, the people he was touching, he shouldn't be touching. So he touched sick people. Well, we're supposed to use hand sanitizer after we (laughs) touch people now, but... But in his world, he there was no hand sanitizer. You weren't supposed to touch them. He touched dead people. He definitely weren't supposed to touch dead people. He touched lepers. He weren't supposed to touch lepers. Then he went and ate with sinners and tax collectors and ate their food, touched their food. Now, every time he did that, he made himself unclean. He made himself outside the boundaries. He made himself. One like them. So when he touched those people and said, God is present in this moment, he was saying, God is present with you. And he was living God's compassion and generosity for each one of those people. And so his yoke, his Torah, is based on compassion and love for all people. Which is very good news if you are one of those people. It was less good news for those who were already on the inside. And the consequences of that can be seen. Jesus' yoke, she says, overturned the social barriers and abolished the taboos. It declares God's loving compassion for all. So I wonder what that offers us in our time. And as I think about that, I also wonder, given that, what this passage might mean for people in different situations to us. For example, refugees and displaced peoples. What about the people marching in the Black Lives Matter marches around the world and in the US? What does it offer them? Or the woman whose experience of abuse is part of the Me Too movement and is caught up in the ongoing Jeffrey Epstein case, which continues to unfold. Or the people living in parts of the world where COVID-19 is still surging and they're still in in some kind of lockdown or going back into lockdown. And finally the people in Hong Kong. So the question for me in all of that then is how do we experience God's faithfulness in all of that? So I invite you to have a conversation. Given all of that, where do we experience God's faithfulness? after we've had a conversation for a minute or two we will say the creed.